Look, marriage matters a lot in China. And so there's incredible pressure on young women often to get married. The problem is they're supposed to get married before the age of 27. After 27, they're often called shengnu, means leftover woman. And so suddenly you, you graduate from your master's degree at 24, and you have three years to figure out the entirety of love before society deems you inedible. And so you again, it's this conflict of old and new. Welcome to Voices of Esalen. I'm Sam Stern. Today, my guest is Zach Dykwalt, author of Young China, How the Restless Generation Will Change Their Country and the World. Zach came to Esalen as part of our Conversations on the Edge series, where we bring together leading experts and visiting teachers to explore a pressing issue of our time. Zach is a brilliant speaker and a leading expert on youth culture in China. Together, we discussed many aspects of Chinese millennials, including common misconceptions, how the project of childhood functions, how the Chinese real estate market is supported in many ways by the marriage market, what it's like to be young and gay in China, Chinese hip-hop, internet, the culture of dissent, how Chinese millennials have redefined the marketplace internationally, who their sports heroes are, what they may think of their United States counterparts, and what the next 100 years may bring. Zach, you're the author of Young China, How the Restless Generation Will Change Their Country and the World. I'd like to ask you how your interest in science fiction initially influenced you to study abroad in China. I was studying in New York. I'm from Berkeley originally, the Berkeley area, a little suburb right next to Berkeley. Studying in New York, and I was deciding where to study abroad. Um, I spoke French at the time. I, I don't speak any now. Please don't quiz me. And I was looking at sort of the pamphlet for France, and... It looked a lot like a history book, you know, uh, go study the history of art, the history of philosophy, the history of uh, sort of modern politics uh, and so on. And I started to page through and I happened on Hong Kong and Hong Kong, the pamphlet for Hong Kong, University of Hong Kong in particular, looked a lot like the science fiction books I love to read. Uh, at that point in school, I had realized that I did not want to be a psych major because I would skip my psych classes to, to read. And so I figured I'd just be a lit major and, and see what happens. And I was studying the confluence of, of science and culture, how cultures internalize scientific development using literature as a proxy for that, which is a, which is kind of a fancy way of saying I was trying to find a, liter, a, a, a lit degree where I could start reading science fiction. Um, and so Hong Kong was cool because it it was it was sort of a linguistic loophole. Uh, I didn't have to speak fluent Mandarin or fluent Cantonese in order to go. I had to have one semester, which I did. But yeah, science fiction, I was I was looking at where to go. One looked like it was future facing. And when you set it up like that, go study the past or go study the future. For me, it was an easy decision. That's great. So tell me, how did the China that you witnessed during your time there differ from the China that you'd heard about? You know, in other words, like which misconceptions about young China could you immediately dispel? When we look at China, we look at two versions typically. First is is big government, which is scary, right? The big brother breathing down your neck as soon as you cross the border. There's sort of poorly dressed agents following your every move. Uh, that's China number one. China number two is big economy, uh, which is exciting. And increasingly, you know, we are amidst a trade war, increasingly scary as well. So you have these two versions that are that are headline driven and our headlines and our and our news cycle is calamity driven. So they are made to seem even scarier than what they normally are. And, and this is sort of it. We don't know much about the people. The biggest difference is when you get up close, when you start to meet people. From from Hong Kong as a 20-year-old, I would travel extensively into mainland China, sort of on my own, the first couple of times with friends. 
And the biggest difference is you realize that these are just people, you know, I would meet kids who are my age, who are, who are, you know, asking me about like sex and sports and going out and what do we do for dates and how have we tried pot before I'm from California. So you guys can guess, you know, the, these are the normal anxieties, curiosities, seeking, searching questions of youth. And when you look at China from up close, you realize it's abundantly human. There's a human side, what I think of as a people first approach to China that most of us miss because we're focused on these headline calamities that drive clicks, but don't help us understand China from the ground. There is a, a saying that got really popular uh, online and in China a couple of years ago. It's it means your butt determines your brain. Basically, where you sit in the world, who's around you, your view, uh, what you're looking at, the headlines that you're reading, the, the sort of language you're exposed to, the chatter you hear growing up, to a far greater degree than we'd like to admit to ourselves, determines our worldview. And so through interacting with China on the ground level, they, they say like literally close to the ground. The challenge is try to is to try to put your butt in a seat in China and see what the world looks like from that vantage point. I'm kind of curious about how the concept of, of human potential is is manifested in China. Like would a growth center like Esalen have traction? Would they have audience within today's China? Within today's China? Yes. The basics are covered. And people are realizing that that extra iPhone isn't going to fill up that dark nothing. You know, the dark nothingness that kind of hangs out. In the, you're, right, you're right. Yeah, just kind of hard to fill up. Uh, and, and places like Esalen are really built for, for that dark nothingness and, and to fill it up and, and, to, and to have things even grow there. And so this young generation in China is moving past materialism and, and asking what's next. What did you find to be the differences in general between the millennials in the United States, uh, of which you were a part, and millennials in China? And I'm, I'm kind of interested to hear about how they welcomed you as a, a foreigner. What were their work habits like of the Chinese millennials? This concept of, of being able to eat bitter, if you would speak about that. Sure. Well, so, so first I want to talk about the difference between old China and young China. You kind of touched on it with your last question. When we think of old China... And Often when we think of China, we're, we're limited by these old misperceptions. Uh, we think of the word communism. We think of Mao Zedong. We think a, a manufacturing economy who makes stuff that will like break in our kids' noses uh, and maybe get lost in their windpipes. Like that, that is the version of China that we have. Uh, when I was interacting with China again on the ground, you realize that these kids have grown up at a rate at something called China speed. So China has changed so much. We know a little bit about the Chinese economic miracle. We forget how recently China was bitterly poor. And so the old generation, sort of the baby boomers of China, people, people my dad's age in China grew up at a time or were born at a time when, when China was amongst the poorest nations in the world. In 1950, uh, the average life expectancy was 36 years old, 36, 1950. Infant mortality was around 31%. So one in three kids were dying uh, before they before they reached a, a mature infancy. We're talking about deep poverty in, in recent history. Over the next 69 years, there was an incredible longevity revolution, incredible long, longevity revolution. Uh, the average life expectancy today is 75 from 36. Between 1950 uh, and 1979, there were 440 million people added to the population. So today, the population of China is 1.4 billion. Big number. In 1950, it was less than half. 540 million. There was an incredible baby boom, uh, as well as just people 
in the, in the Mao era, say what you will. And there was a lot of awful atrocities that took place, but people stopped dying before they, before they turned five. Suddenly infant mortality went from 31% to 6%. And now it's, I think under 1%. You have this rapid transition from old China to young China from bitterly poor to what we have now, which, which is sort of, we th- we can think of as the world's middle class for this, for this young generation. The old generation grew up in the fields. They grew up plowing the fields. They grew up in an era of anti-intellectualism. Uh, you'll notice that this generation, the older generation is often a head shorter than their, than their kids, just because they grew up in a time of deep malnutrition. So you mentioned eat bitter, uh, I have I have friends whose parents from Guizhou province. It's it's inland China, high mountains, far rivers, isolate or, or winding rivers, isolated from the rest of China. They described to me the very first time they ever interacted with the outside world. It was they went to a neighboring village to go see a cousin of theirs. They looked on the wall of their hut house and they saw a twelve month calendar on the wall. Fields of Europe. That was it. That was the entire view of the outside. Most of their life was consumed with farm work. And so they were best known for their ability to chiku, to eat bitter, to do difficult things for long periods of time at the prospect of delayed gratification. And not like, I know you have a, a, a newborn, Sam, not like you're, you know, there's going to be a day where you try to be like, hey, if you work hard and get good grades, you know, we'll maybe take you to like, we'll take you to Big Sur Bakery or something, something like that. And we'll give you a cinnamon roll. Who knows? Uh, not that kind of delayed gratification. This is the sort where you will work hard for five years, 10 years, maybe a generation with no prospect of, of getting payback on that working hard, just so that maybe the next generation can have a better life than you. That sort of hard nosed grit is what defined the older generation in China. Now, does some of that translate to the current millennial generation? One of the fundamental differences between Chinese millennials and American millennials is the project of childhood. What a childhood is for is simply different. Tell me about that. So I, I can tell you the story uh, of Bella. One of, actually, I think the second chapter in my book is about a young woman named Bella. I met Bella at Suzhou University in the library. The libraries at Suzhou University, especially during winter, get really cold because everywhere south of the Yangtze, um, everywhere considered a, a southern city, doesn't have heat uh, during winter. No indoor heating. It gets freezing. It gets below freezing. But because it's a southern city, we don't need heat. Uh, so... I'm wearing a thick parka and I, and, and I go to find a seat in this library um, and I take a seat behind a stack of books. Each table in the library is covered with sort of uh, buttresses of books as each sort of individual sitting at one of these tables makes a mini fort of all of the content that they're studying. Unbeknownst to me, I had taken the seat of someone I would later think of as Mr. Economics. Uh, so I was surrounded by his sort of cathedral of, of economics textbooks. I wasn't thinking about that. I was trying to write my Chinese characters. All of a sudden, I hear sort of a laugh next to me. Um, this young woman, Bella, start, is, is laughing at my crappy Chinese characters. Bella's my age. Uh, I had learned that she actually had taken the year off just to study for a test. She wanted to be a translator. She was taking a test where around two or three of 700 students would get into the program. She was studying the entire year. I knew Bella for those next nine months as she was preparing. And so at around six in the morning, every single day, she would leave her 
crowded dorm room with five other young women with no bathroom inside of it and no hot water inside of it to trek through the leaves during the fall, through the snow during the winter, and then, of course, during the spring through the the incredible bloom on Sujo University to get in the morning to the library where she would sit and study until around 9 p.m. every single night. I never got another seat again because Mr. Economics came back. So I would study, you know, I I would try to compete. I I went to a pretty decent university. I went to Columbia. Theoretically, I'm one of the nerdy kids in, in, in in the States. I cannot hold a candle to... Bella and all of the other people at Sujo University Library. What's unique about Sujo University Library is that it's totally not unique. It's it's a middling university. Bella was a middling student by her own admission. She was putting in hours that we can only fathom. And that work ethic, that project of childhood. And by the way, Bella Bella is not unique. Between ages of pretty much three to three to eighteen, young people are spending most of their time in the library. And it's because the college entrance exam in China is all that matters for you to get into college. If you were the captain of the water polo team, I was the captain of the water polo team. This isn't a fictional hypothesis here. That's really great. You wasted a lot of time when you should have been studying. Uh, if you were the the best tuba player in your state, that's really sweet. Instead of blowing into the tubas, you probably should have been in the library studying for this test. If you're, if you had great leadership qualities, if you were uh, an incredible painter, none of that matters. The only thing that matters is the score on a test. And so young people in China devote an enormous amount of time to the study hall. Why? Because the competition to get ahead, the competition to get into a good college or a good high school, the competition to get into a good college, the competition to get into a good graduate school, the competition on the job market, and then the competition on the marriage market afterwards is all bitterly fierce. And the project of childhood has evolved to accommodate that that competition. Well, I kind of want to hear about now the uh, competition on the marriage market. Yeah, I seeded that one a little bit, didn't I? <laughs> I mean, tell me about it. Because there, there was something in your book which was really uh, kind of interesting. It was like, when a Chinese woman is searching for a man, a catch is tall, rich, and handsome, with the punchline being, but actually tall and handsome you can do without. Yeah, so, I mean, it's, look, marriage matters a lot in China. Uh, it still does. This is this is sort of, by the way, when you're thinking of old China and young China, this young generation, I think of the, the post-90s generation, which, you know, the millennial generation in China, I often think of as the identity generation. They are at the fault line of two tectonic plates. You have, you have tradition on one side, old China on one side, uh, sort of this deep-seated Confucianism, the importance of the family, filial piety. I mean, it's not, people won't say I'm a Confucianist, but it, it's sort of like we don't say that we are really believe in the works of Adam Smith. It, it's it's often deeply internalized in our in our world perspectives. Same within China. So on one on one tectonic plate you have tradition. On the other side you have the the pressures of modernity, urbanization, the need to be educated past eighteen. Uh, you know, in China it used to be you don't really get educated. You just move to your you know you build a hut to your next to your parents and you work the land. The want for women to be educated and and thrive and have incredible jobs. So those two tectonic plates are sort of grinding against one another. And there's often conflict between old and young or old China and young China. One one example for the marriage market. Um, Women, it used to be that women were were considered spilt water. Uh, so, uh, 
married out women are like spilled water. The idea being they no longer nourish the family tree. This was a major issue with the one child policy, by the way, uh, because men stay within the family and look after their parents uh, after their parents age. Women marry into the other family and are no longer responsible for looking out to their looking after their parents. That was fine when you had five or six kids per family. You know, theoretically, half half boys, half girls. You'd have the boys. Look, I mean, it, it it was a system that worked. And so, there's incredible pressure on young women often to get married. The problem is, they're supposed to get married before the age of 27. After 27, they're often called what's what's what what in China they call shengnu. It means leftover woman. The idea is that if you're not married by a certain age, you're considered the society's leftovers, deemed socially inedible. It used to make sense if everyone got married after age 18 or 16 or whatever it was. The thing is now you're also told that you need to bust your tail to get into a good college. And then a good college isn't enough because now you need a, a, a higher edu- you need higher education. So you bust your tail. These young women are, are working their tails off to get into a, a great master's degree. Uh, but they're also not really supposed to date before then. They're supposed to kind of like be focused on school. And so suddenly you, you graduate from your master's degree at 24 and you have three years to figure out the entirety of love before society, society deems you inedible. And so you, again, it's this conflict of old and new. So there's marriage pressure on women in a very fierce way. For men, there's also something similar. This, like what you said, the tall, rich, and handsome. So Gaofu Shui. Uh, Gaofu Shui is tall, Fu is rich, and Shui is handsome. China is still very realistic, which is a euphemism for like still somewhat materialistic around marriage. You know, China grew up, and particularly this is pressure from the older generations who grew up in a time of deep scarcity. And so young people, particularly the male, being able to provide for the young woman is seen as a prerequisite. Uh, What does that mean? It often means wealth. How does wealth manifest? It often means an apartment. And so if any of you have ever heard about a Chinese real estate bubble, like how is it that people are still buying apartments if, if the cost of apartments are so out of whack with the average income in China? That's absolutely true. You have a real estate market more or less propped up on a marriage market because these young men feel like, all right, I want to make my parents happy. I need to get married. All right. How do I get married? I need to make her parents happy. So I need to own property. I can't afford property. How do I how do I afford property? Well, I got to ask my mom, dad and grandparents to help chip in. They chip in. So I'm hurting my parents to make them happy ultimately through a marriage. And I mean, it it gets into this like kind of Seinfeld episode of like, I got to please my parents. I got to borrow from my parents. I got to marry this girl. I got to like pretend to have an apartment. And and so, again, this pressure of old and new on both sides puts an enormous amount of weight onto the shoulders of, of this young generation. They're reacting by the way, you know, some people are, you know, you have a lot of women who are just like, look, I'm just not going to get married before 30 period. And you could say what you want, but if there's enough of us, there's strength in numbers in, in cities like Shanghai and Beijing, you see that more and more for young men. I mean, the, the cost of apartments are seen as so ridiculous. It like truly ridiculous, like not even like comical ridiculous. How how big of a factor is this? If I were to ask any of my friends in China to close their eyes, say I'm in Suzhou. Suzhou is a city right outside of Shanghai. If I were to ask them to close their eyes and tell me the cost per square meter Mm. up to a week of accuracy of Suzhou, they'd be able to tell me the cost of square meter per in different neighborhoods. That's not even the impressive part. I'd then ask them Beijing and they'd know. Shanghai, they'd know. Shenzhen, Chongqing, Chengdu, Wuhan, they'd know. These numbers, the price of real estate is is 
painted on the inside of most of my friends' eyelids. It's something that defines a lot of the happiness and perception of, of success in China for these young people in ways that we can't even understand. When I tell my friends in China, I don't know how much real estate costs in San Francisco, they think I'm either miserably poor because uh, I just can't even imagine buying real estate or extraordinarily rich to the point where it's not even a consideration and I can just buy all the apartments I want. So what's the attitude of Chinese millennials towards homosexuality? I know you dedicated a, a chapter in your book to, to this. China doesn't have sin, right? Uh, so you compare to a lot of the Judeo-Christian hangups that we have here in the United States uh, that often limit us from, from being accepting of the LGBT community. China doesn't really have that. But again, China doesn't have religion. It does have family. And so for a lot of men in particular, the issue becomes less around two men getting together and more around that two men getting together doesn't produce kids. I, I had the great pleasure of interviewing uh, Li Yinhe, the, the foremost sexologist in China. She's like this firebrand in the 1990s. She was talking about it at a time when nobody was talking about it in China. And she was like, look, two guys get together and most people in the neighborhood are just like, oh, two strapping fine gentlemen are wasting a lot of energy instead of making a family. It, but, but it's not the the religious knee jerk that's wrong. And so it becomes a practical issue. So in China, you're seeing more acceptance around the idea of homosexuality, but also a real rigor around finding a sort of Confucian workaround to be like, all right, um, adoption is we, we still want kids. You know, the parents still want kids. So adoption is an option. The pro problem with adoption is it's not your blood. It's not your bloodline. Uh, and so in vitro is, is being considered. A lot of people are finding sort of friends of friends and, and, and sort of some version where, where the child that they end up raising these two men raise are still passed down from their, from their lineage. It, it's a, it becomes an issue of practicality. That's sort of the lighter side of things. The darker side is you get something what's called pianhun. Pianhun is when people, is when men feel that they cannot come out and absolutely must get married to sort of observe the forms. And so they lie. Uh, it's estimated that about 80% of, of gay men in China actually take part in these marriages uh, of the, of these sort of sham marriages is what they're called. It, it leads to heartbreak because these women who all remember marriage is a very, is a far more central unit even than we have here in the West. And so you have both sides entering into something. Um, the women off, the, I mean, I'm getting certainly the, the, they're being lied to. And so their most important relationship ends up being a sham. Uh, in my book, I write about a, a suicide uh, after this young woman found out that uh, her husband was on some of the the sort of grinder equivalents in China, uh, looking for uh, a good time in Chengdu. You also have what's called Xinghun. Uh, Xinghun is a form marriage. So you'll get uh, a gay man and a gay woman getting together just so they can like, you know, take the pictures and, and go home for the holidays and be like, look, mom and dad, we're just like you wanted us. Uh, but then they go back to their, their city lives and they, and they live their life. They figure it's easier to sort of uh, hoodwink their parents and their hometowns, which are often kind of stuck in the past, then break the news. And, and what about one thing I think about with the millennial culture is a more or less recent embrace of non-binary gender identities. Had, had you seen any of this uh, within China? It's a lot less in China. There's no 
pronoun sensitivity, the way that that's entered the mainstream in the United States, there's a lot of, and honestly, political correctness. I know, I know we, this isn't political correctness in, in China is, is often seen as ridiculous. I, again, I remember that I grew up, I went to a very liberal school and I grew up in a very liberal area. I'm for this. And so I'm not, this isn't, this isn't my perspective here. Um, but in China, people see it as a luxury that they can't yet afford. They see it as, as man, things are so good there that they've made up problems to, to, to approach, honestly, is, is the way it's often discussed. In a way that's, in a way that's true, you know, you think of Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you have the basics, food, shelter, water. This was the old China. They were a sustenance generation. Now we get move up to the second rung. You have love, you have companionship, you have sort of a basic sense of fulfillment. That's great. And that's where this generation is at in China. As you start moving up the ladder, you start to be able to approach issues of identity in a much more material way. People in China do not feel that they have moved up that ladder in a material enough way. On top of that, there's also a huge interest in Abraham Maslow uh, because of this exact explanation. They're like, all right, how do I how do I explain to my parents that I care about who I am as much as just making money? Because the parents are in a subsistence mindset, like the money, the more, the better. Happiness is money like that. That's it. And so for these young people who are trying to be like, yeah, but like, I also want to like, like what I do and love my wife or husband. I'm not finding a teammate or like a, or like a business partner, which is honestly what a lot of marriage was. Mm. Uh, now I want to find like someone to love. And a lot of parents in China at first were like, I have spoiled my kid rotten. And now they're coming around and they're recognizing that kids are kids. They have a different set of demands and needs and are, and are, and are facing a are facing a different world, a different China than the one that the parents and the grandparents grew up in. I want to come back to a phrase that you used uh, a few minutes ago, which was post nineties. I listened to an interview you did recently where you said, actually, there are no millennials in China. Would you speak a bit about this post designation and perhaps bring us through a bit of the, um, the, the history? Sure. So, so using the millennial bucket, China has 417 million millennials. We have 80 million in the United States. So there's a big to do about American millennials. Like, who are we, what are we going to buy? What do we, what do we, what cell phone are we going to use? Who are we going to vote for? Are we going to vote at all? Can we be loyal to anything? Uh, why don't we want to work in offices? There's 80 million of us. There's 417 million Chinese millennials. There's actually more young people in China than there are human beings in the United States and Canada combined. So just, just to set the stage, uh, on the other hand, the word millennial is a Western idea. So we made, you know, marketers made up the idea of boomers and, and Gen Xers and, and, and millennials to, to group people with enough historical and social similarities, enough historical and social background similarities that they could sell them more hula hoops or acne cream. Honestly, like these people are similar enough. They like the same music. We can put that music in the back of a commercial and they'll buy our product more. Um, China, because it develops so fast. Mm. A 20-year grouping like a boomer or millennial simply will not work. And so the way that people describe the generations in China is typically on the decade. So you have the post-50s. Remember, China was formed in 1949. So the post-50s are really the first generation of, of the modern 
People's Republic of China. Uh, this is the beginning of the eat bitter generation or, or commonly called the unfortunate generation as well for having to live through the Great Leap Forward and the famine that went with it as well as the Cultural Revolution. Uh, you have the post-60s, the post-70s, the post-80s. The post-80s are, are often called the guinea pig generation. 1980, China's reform and opening, the one-child policy began. So this is the first single-child generation. Um, and they grew up at a time of deep turmoil as China was figuring out how to tra- transition from a pretty restrictive, repressive, and violent communism towards something kind of more pragmatic and different, like a weird mix of capitalism and, and socialism and, and then some other stuff which, which had never existed before. The post-90s, they're post-Tiananmen. They're post-Tiananmen Square, which was 1989. Uh, they, have, they grew up in a different under a different education system. The state education before them had really emphasized Mao and how great Mao was. People realized after Tiananmen that people weren't really buying that shit. So they switched it to the, the state education instead of focusing on how great Mao was and really China 1949 to, to 1990. Uh, they focused on how great China was, has been forever. Mm. You know, last 5,000 years of history versus the last 50 years of history. And from that view, China is really great. Um, and was mostly really great. In fact, the only real exception was the last 100 or 200 years. And so a lot of this young generation is sort of like, all right, we were really great, so we have very high potential. We were really poor and weak recently. Foreigners invaded us, but we also allowed ourselves to be invaded. We got addicted to opium. Yes, they they tried to get us addicted, but we let ourselves get addicted too. Um, And so now we are re-returning. The word used in China is fuxing. Fuxing means uh, return or sort of revive or, or it, it suggests returning to a, a, a place of greatness, um, which is very persuasive psychology. On top of that, the post-90s have witnessed the greatest Cinderella story in the history of economics and maybe capitalism. This is the wildest part, is that the world's largest so-called communist party has been behind. You can't credit them entirely with, with what happened in China, but has certainly been behind the greatest deployment and, and use of capital, the greatest really capitalist experiment in the history of, of the program and the history of capitalism. So in 1990, when I was born, um, the per capita GDP in China was around 300 bucks. In my lifetime, I've watched our per capita GDP in the United States increase two and a half times. So the quality of life, two and a half times better in the United States. The the education my parents could afford for me, maybe two and a half times better. The cars my neighbor could drive, two and a half times faster. This is very hypothetical. Obviously, it's a, a, a kind of blunt metric. My friends in China, born in 1990, have watched their per capita GDP increase 27 times in their lifetime. Faster by a factor of 10. Maybe it's just the developing country thing. What about India? Massive millennial population. India is the only popular, the only country in the world with a larger millennial population than China. Um, if you were born in 1990 to today, you've watched your per capita GDP in China, your quality of life, only increase 5x, again, compared to 27 in China. Brazil, BRICS nation, 3.2. Uh, Germany, robust country, you know, robust economy, 1.9. In fact, if you were to if you were to ask me what is the single biggest difference between Chinese millennials and any millennial population around the rest of the world, the rest of the world, we have seen our world around us, our hometowns, our cities, our state capitals, our uncle's jobs increase at a comparable rate, improve, grow at a comparable rate. You know, you're talking about a per capita GDP increase between pretty much 1.5 and 6 x since we were born 
There's only one country in the world that has witnessed anything greater than that, and that's China. And so this young generation, different than other generations around the world, as well as different than past generations in China, have witnessed with their own eyes their village turn into a town, turn into a city. Their uncle being proud to bring home a, a bicycle, which was a sign of wealth, and now he has a two-car garage. Or now his neighbor has a two-car garage, and he's very jealous of him. I mean, they've, they've witnessed with their own eyes the most really this shift, and so... It leads to something that other generations in China did not feel when they were young, which is pride, which is pride in what not just their country is built. Like when we talk about countries and like nationalism and patriotism, that's fine. They're proud of their parents. They're proud of their parents for suddenly having, you know, who growing up without a refrigerator and suddenly having an apartment with two refrigerators and a microwave that looks like it could blast off into space. It's so high tech. They're, they're proud of their, their grandparents for working so hard and now getting to rest. Mm. It's a personal shift. And, and so often when we talk about China, we, we assume that any young person who's proud of, of who they are, or where they're from is brainwashed. We talk about propaganda. We talk about, you know, the big brother government, we discredit or devalue a lot of what they have, you know, their lived experience, what they've witnessed with their own eyes, which is by the numbers, not just incredible, but exceptional. You talk about a new Chinese identity, which is modern without necessarily being westernized. Can you tell me a little bit about that? This is a challenging idea for a lot of people. So there's something that I think of as cultural gravity. Cultural gravity, it's this idea basically, and I think of this really since post-World War II, that the United States and Western Europe, but really the United States, if we're talking about economic clout, has been the gravitational center of a lot of the world. And, and, and I mean that gravitational center because in some places in the gra- in the orbit around that center, you know, some gravitational pull is weaker, some of it's stronger. Um, but I'm really talking about the world often orbiting around us and us creating systems so that the world does do that. We call it the United Nations. It's based in New York City. You know, at our, our fashion, our media, our TV, our movies, we've exported those in a way that a lot of the world is sort of fallen into that cultural orbit. What's so interesting about China, different than any East Asian culture, economy, country, is that there's so many people, there's so much economic and political clout, power, that suddenly they're the first culture that might have enough cultural gravity to shift the way that our world spins. And so this, it's something I call the Shanghai fallacy, which is this expectation of ours based on the way that this cultural gravity system used to work, that as a country modernized, they would westernize. As they got richer, they'd be more like us. That kind of was true with the tiger economies. Actually, the only real threat to that was was Japan. Like in, when Japan was starting to rise in the 70s and 80s, there's there's a ton of science fiction written at the time imagining what an Eastern power, an Eastern world power would look like. If you read it now, it's kind of hokey, you know, like eating hamburgers with chopsticks. Like they, they, they I mean, these are the limits of our imagination at the time. But, but we had never encountered the idea of not Westernization, but Easternization. Right. So what is Easternization, do you think? So Easternization, I mean, this is this is really the question. By the way, it's not an idea in our vocabulary. Right. We all know what Westernization is. If you ask someone what Easternization is, I mean, even Microsoft Word rejects it as an error. Uh, you get the red squiggly lines underneath. So Easternization. Easternization could mean that the when you go on vacation, the placement of a bed uh, in the room 
depending on the window and the sunlight based on feng shui. So, so the, the Chinese uh, practice of, of sort of arranging and design and sort of deliberation uh, of where things ought to be based on the direction, northeast, southwest, the light, and then meridians, maybe that will be different because suddenly Chinese customers have enough consumer clout where the people designing that room have to care more about that customer than us. So the world that we enter is no longer going to be designed for us so much as the Chinese customer. I mean, this is the funny part about capitalism is it sort of flows with the customer. Yeah. And so if the the guys with the bigger bucks are no longer Americans, suddenly the world around us, including the cars that are made, including the clothing that's designed, including the music and the movies that get popular. You know, America's biggest export is not Ford. It's our culture. And that's through film and TV. China is trying to put a massive emphasis on that. They're failing in a lot of ways. And in part because the government is funding it, and I don't care which government you are, most governments aren't very cool. No, uh, you know, if if you were to ask like the Trump administration to make some groovy tunes, they'd have some issues. China's not- Chinese government is funding, say, like their hip hop. Less their hip hop, but they are trying to fund a modern Chinese culture. So not like the Chi Pao's and the and the emperor and the you know like these old versions of China. They're trying to decide what it means to be both modern and Chinese at the same time. People are doing this throughout China. Um, the government is trying to encourage it while also being terrified when it does happen. Uh, Hip hop is a really good example of that. Hip hop has been very intuitive in China. And it, and it caught on like wildfire. There's this show, Zhongguo Yo Siha, China Has Hip Hop, that got on average 200 million views. To put that in perspective, the season finality of Game of Thrones got 30 million views. 200 million views for China Has Hip Hop. And if you think about it, like a lot of hip hop is like we were we were brought up in these rough places. We're going to make poetry, put it to put it to beats. I mean, some of it is more, you know sleeping with people and, and wearing fancy stuff. But I mean, a lot of, a lot of like old school hip hop is like, Hey, this is my story. I'm coming from this really shitty background. I want to tell that story to a beat. And it's very much a culture of dissent. How does this work in, right. inside of a, a country where the dissent is not looked upon favorably? It's, it's an interesting point because a lot of hip hop in China is like, I've moved to a big city and I miss my family. I'm working a shitty manufacturing job. Uh, it's really hard. And life is really hard. I mean, and it is objectively hard. I'm working eight hours a week for like a menial pay. And like, what's my future like? It's confusion around that. Um, It's much less rap of dissent. And when it does become rap of dissent, which it started to become, the government hits the brakes. Mm -hmm. And so the second season of China Has Hip Hop, um, they got stripped of their advertising. They, 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 They really hit the brake, the government hit the brakes. It was like one foot on the gas because they wanted Chinese culture to be cool. And then once it got too cool and too popular, they hit the brakes because they were worried that it was something they couldn't control. I want to ask you, how do Chinese millennials feel about, do they bemoan the, the censorship or the censorship of the internet? Do they, do they feel and speak about the fact that the government is an oppressive force? Yes. Uh, I, I want to make sure though, that I characterize, you know, these all have orders of magnitude. I think that the perception I, I sort of bump up against most often in, in conversations, I you know, I, in, in speeches I give or, or whatever it is, conversations I have, conversations on planes and lines. When people here, I live in China, they're like, oh, man, like, when's the revolution going to happen? Um, and and this, this is what a lot of people think. Like, as soon as this young generation has sort of an inch of fresh air or gets exposed to Western culture and freedoms, they're going to want to overhaul their government and, and hop on with our system. That's not necessarily the case. And so in the issues of free speech, 
I currently would characterize it more as a bummer than a breaking point. Mm-hmm. It's something that people are very aware of, but it it it's not pushing people to overthrow. And I can explain why. Um, when you when you evaluate the quality of your system, I don't care if it's a like a, your stereo system or your government system. You do two things. First, you think about the real quality of your system, like how good is it, and the stereo system. I mean, this is a ridiculous, a ridiculous <laughs> no, like, like analogy. Okay, like how how good's the sound quality? How good you know how good's the battery? Saying you know say it's mobile. Um, how does it look? Uh, how does it make you feel? Is the bass deep enough for you? Does it fit your needs? Um, that's one. And in China, like how, how much, how much prosperity has the government brought to us? Do they make me feel safe? Is there stability? Uh, are there job opportunities? Uh, are the price of things in whack? Are we becoming more powerful or less powerful? These are, these are things you consider. And by those marks, China's pretty good. With that being said, we can't vote. We don't have freedom of speech. Freedom of gather is in question. Uh, at most, you know, there are clear, clear drawbacks. That's, that's consideration. Number one, how good is my stereo system? How good is my government? Consideration number two is how good are the alternatives? And this is where it gets a little uncomfortable because the other stereo systems, the American stereo system or the British stereo system or the French stereo system, and I say this as a, as a proud owner and, and, and <laughs> member of the allegiance of the stereo, you know, I'm proud American. Uh, they, they kind of look worse now than ever. What's happening with Trump is, and I'm not, China isn't vitriolically against Trump. There's a lot of empathy towards the Trump voter in China. But it looks like our world and our system is a bit in disarray. At the last World Economic Forum, the three leaders of the most outspoken proponents of democracy didn't show because they were putting out fires back home. Trump was putting out a fire in Congress. There was a vote of no confidence uh, in, in UK parliament and Macron, the, the, the president of, of France, president, president, the leader of France, uh, was literally putting out fires in the, in the apartments of the rich from Molotov cocktails lobbed through the windows from protesters. It's easier now than ever to look around and think, Hey man, like democracy is, it's fine. And I get the ideals, but people there seem to be pretty upset about it. Uh, or they're upset about inequality, or they're upset about the efficacy of their government. Um, if you look towards the Middle East, it doesn't look like democracy exports particularly well. I mean, if you were looking for reasons not to like that stereo system, there is more fodder now than than ever. On top of that, and I and I don't again, this comes towards the brainwashing issue. This young generation is more exposed to the outside world than any other generation in Chinese history. Full stop. There are. They've, they've grown up studying 10 years of English. Uh, they grew up watching our movies, uh, watching our TV shows. I have friends who can quote Martin Luther King Jr. And, and what's the guy's name from How I Met Your Mother? Barney from How I Met Your Mother. In the same sentence. I mean, there's more fluency uh, in the outside world from China than there, far more fluency than, than the outside world, frankly, has in China. So this young generation, I mean, one in three students studying abroad in the United States, one in three are from China. And this might sound upsetting, contrary to what we might expect, increased interaction has not necessarily led to more admiration. In fact, the older generations in China saw the United States, saw the UK, saw Australia, really the United States as as a city on a hill, as a place to be admired. Things look great when you admire them from afar. 
anyone who has fallen, who has, who has gotten a crush on the New York subway can attest to this, especially if you act on your crush, you realize that, you know, they could look great from far away and then you start talking to them and they're just a normal person. Uh, but like, they're never as good as the incredible, fantastical relationship that you form in your head. And so as a lot of young people are interacting with the United States up close, they're realizing that it's flawed too. And while their own government is deeply flawed, A, it gets things done. It, it, it gets things done at a rate that does not happen here in the United States. And that's just, you know, if you if you see a tunnel by your hometown go up in seven months and it takes seven years to connect Berkeley and Arinda, the Caldecott Tunnel, that's a real comparison. And the second part, which is we often devalue, is it's home for them. You know, leaving home, there's high emotional cost for that. So even though their system is flawed, it's their flawed system. Mm-hmm. Their parents live there. They speak the language that they grew up with. The food is their food. There, there's the really mundane gravitational pull of just what's yours, what you were born to. It's like people who like the Golden State Warriors for the first 18 years of my life when we were absolute trash. It's just because I was born there. I was born into it. And then we got good. Yeah, and now uh, it's and, trash and, again. And now we're bad again. Good. But, but there's the allegiance of familiarity that I think we undervalue. Talk to me a little bit about how, how the, and thank you for, for explicating that. I think that was a deep and, and interesting answer. Um, talk to me a little bit about how Chinese millennials redefined the, the marketplace internationally and, and how that con- is continuing to happen. Like, what are the consumer desires of, of young China? So first, you got to set up the scale. This young generation isn't rich yet. To be absolutely clear, there's this idea that, I mean, we, we see the rich ones because they're traveling here, you know, but, but travel is a really good window into it. Only 9% of the, of the Chinese population has a passport, 9%, um, compared with 40% in the United States and 90% in the UK and Germany and these places. So only 9%. In spite of that, China is already the largest outbound tourism spender in the world. So they spend more than any other country. They surpassed the United States in the last decade, whereas the United States has grown by 54%. And the other contenders who are on the top five have like grown by single digits or negative. China has grown by 765% in outbound spend. So it's an upward trend, you could say, uh, to, to, you know, to put it lightly. When that 9% goes to 18%, you're talking about another 100 plus million travelers. Two-thirds of all passport holders are under the age of 37. They're millennials. And so when you put all this together, you have one generation single-handedly redefining the world of travel, and it hasn't even really begun yet. It's only just begun. Travel's just one sector. If you look at the luxury sector, and I, I mean, it's, it's cheesy just to focus on luxury, but people seem to really care about it. LVMH, the 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 company with the holding company with all of the... Um, particularly French luxury brands, is, is more or less being propped up by Chinese millennials um, as the United States interest sort of flags. I don't want to c- continue to make this a United States versus China thing, but sitting in California, it's easier to do. Um, this young generation in China is sort of, of, they're the first consumer in China's history. I mean, when we think of the older generations in China, we think of people hiding their savings under the mattress. They don't even trust banks. This young generation, consumption is intuitive for them. They're the first generation who's grown up with the luxury of being able to buy stuff, being able to enjoy themselves, really. They have the significance to the marketplace that American baby boomers had to the American marketplace. When they were young uh, in America, when they were babies, Gerbers took off because baby, suddenly everyone in the country was trying to buy, you know, get 
baby formula um, as they turned into teens in the United States uh, and started to look bad. Acne medication really started flying off the shelves. Uh, and now that they're reaching retirement, these retirement packages, life insurance, and, and of course, this research into into these old age diseases is really is, is fundamental here in the United States. In China, you have that too. Uh, and so as they're about to become parents, you can bet that parenting goods are, are they're already going through the roof in China as this first generation of post 90s is, is starting to, you know, hold their kids. They redefine every market they touch. That sounds like a exaggeration. It's not. That's pretty fascinating. Yeah. I mean, you were just talking about the Golden State Warriors uh, earlier. I know that China is the yeah has, has begun influencing the NBA. The NBA big time. I had a I had a conversation with an NBA player recently who called me up to talk about the, what's going on in Hong Kong and, and the whole China thing. Um, we had met at a conference. Uh, he had actually read my book, which was super cool. And I'm like, hey, dude, I play video games with you. It was a weird conversation. Um, but he, he started talking to me because right now you're starting to see China exert its influence on the NBA. And Golden State Warriors are a great example of, of sort of consumption with Chinese characteristics. So Steph Curry, the best basketball player in the league, depending on who you ask, deep asterisk there. But, you know, a two-time MVP, great, great basketball player. Before he became the two-time MVP, his jersey was already the highest-selling jersey in China. Why? Well, what does it mean to be a hero in China versus the United States? We're, we're sitting here at Esalen, and so Joseph Campbell and the hero's journey and, and Odysseus and, and this, that we have an idea, you know, the myths that we were brought up on have informed our understanding of masculinity, of power, of femininity, of good, of evil, of villains, of heroes. I mean, I mean the, the stories that we were told as kids, our sort of cultural heritage around the hero informs our Jersey sales believe it or not. Uh, and so in the United States, the, the heroes that we watch in in the movie theaters are bitten or are endowed with incredible strength and power. Um, for us, LeBron James really resonates. LeBron has like, you know, God-given talents and strength and like he's not like us. He look he's the Superman equivalent in terms of his physical gifts of heroes. And and that's a hero that really resonates with the United States. They're bitten or they're they come from outer space with superhuman talents or they build a big metal suit because of their super genius or super wealth. In China it's a little bit different. In China you have an average guy typically who goes up onto a mountain and and becomes a monk and practices this one move for 30 years and then a lion comes down to ravage a village and then this guy comes and kills the lion with that one move that he had practiced. It's often about an average guy who works harder, longer, with more commitment, who against the odds becomes extraordinary. And Steph Curry is that story within the NBA. He was too small. They said he wasn't fast enough. His shoulders are narrow. He doesn't look like, he looks like a, like a boy in NBA clothes with, with giants running around the table. But through hard work, through grit, through determination, he beat the odds and became a soaring star in the NBA. If I'm a young kid in China, I can't identify with LeBron. I ain't turning into LeBron. But Steph... I mean, as a country, China is Steph in a lot of ways. People said China was too weak, too overweight, too population heavy, not educated enough, not skilled enough. They don't have the goods, create creativity or innovation wise. And so against the odds, China is trying to rise to play on the, the, the international court in, in a really sizable way. I'm curious, what, what were the assumptions that you found from Chinese millennials about you and about uh, Americans? So... One of the early questions I get asked often is, do you guys all just eat bread and hamburgers? 
which is a surprisingly difficult question to refute. So that's that's the first question I would be asked. By the way, most of these questions for me were asked on trains. I, I spent a lot of my time, my first year in China, I spent 300 hours on trains traveling the country. Mm. Uh, it's, it's a moment in my life where my time was worth sig- significantly less than my money. I was very broke. Um, and would, would buy the, you know, I would, I would work for, for a couple of weeks teaching random things, SAT, ACT. I taught golf at one point, which is funny cause I don't know how to play golf. I traveled the country and, uh, you know, hard sleeper with, with a bunch of kids my age who are traveling to and from jobs who had never interacted with a foreigner in their lives. And so the arc of questions was pretty consistent. By the way, they were extraordinarily welcoming. The guest host relationship in China is very much intact. And I, who had, who had clearly taken an interest in China, was welcomed with open doors, open arms, a lot of booze quite often, uh, and a huge amount of food. I told people I was from California. They were like, oh, do you, do you live by the hotel? I'm like, what, what do you mean? You know, Hotel California. I'm like, I had... I swear to God, this is, you know, that's one of the karaoke songs in China that got very popular. And so everyone would be like, oh, do you hang around Hotel California? I'd be like, not, not often. Um, <laughs> and then it gets a little bit more sobering. Does, does everyone have a gun? Uh-huh. It's an insane thing to a lot of people in China that you can just buy an incredibly efficient murder weapon. You know, you see the numbers about around gun deaths in the United States. And here we're like, I mean, we're getting fed up with the thoughts and prayers response from politicians, but we're still talking about curbing it. Like we're still talking about curbing it in other places in the world where the number is like 10 or 15 per year. It, it looks insane what exists in the United States to the extent that people are like, how do you feel safe? And I got to tell you, I don't have a good answer anymore. Bringing the discussion back to science fiction how do you see China evolving over the next 100 years, not only for the current millennials, but for future generations? Will human culture in some ways be shaped principally by what's going on in China? Damn, I've never been asked that before. Um, that's a phenomenal question. Will human culture be shaped principally by what is happening in China? Yes. Without any shadow of a doubt. There's debate about that now. In, in I was in Washington, D.C. a couple days ago, and you hear policy people talking about it. To me, it's it's a it's a indulgent idea that only that 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 China does not have the economic or political inertia to or demographic inertia to, to change the course of of modern history. When you look at what China is doing with the Belt and Road Initiative, Belt and Road Initiative is basically a hub and spoke model of economic and political dependencies and trade deals that China has created with the the Asia extended region. There's 68 countries involved right now, from Jamaica to the UK to Kenya to, and then of course all of the the, the countries in its surrounding area. We don't talk about it that much outside of DC here, but that web of dependencies is significant of China transitioning from a regional power to a global power. That's happening. When you look at what's happening in Africa, by the way, there's a lot of talk about China colonizing Africa. That is grossly overstated. China is frankly playing by the rules of capitalism and trade that we set up, and they're doing it in a way that is is persuasive and to the point of being manipulative. To the extent that they're offering these African countries, many African countries, extraordinary loans that they're not getting elsewhere in the world to the point where these countries would be irresponsible not to take them and build infrastructure in their country. 
in so doing, they are becoming beholden to the Chinese government. What's the point? The point is that China economically and politically is, is, is interweaving itself globally. They're doing it strategically in the Asia extended region. They are already, you you know, you can't have a movie opening in Hollywood now if, if it's not going to open in Beijing as well. Their economic consequence because of our system of capitalism forces us to pay attention to, to them, to who they are, to what they want. And then you have the politics and uh, as well, and and they are savvy. They're you know they're clumsy in some ways, but they're very savvy in others in terms of how they are entrenching themselves in the in the economics and therefore political life of of countries around the world. If the United States will continue to influence the next hundred years, so too will China, and that era has come. Well, what, uh, just just as a as a little extra, what kind of work? might we see uh, in the future from you? Is there going to be another book? If there is an expanded sort of, if you were to expand your range in China, what else might we see you focusing on? Sure. So, so one of the things that I'm working on now is quantifying a lot of the qualitative research I was focusing on. I want, you know, qualitative research has its, I mean, conversations and interviews around the country have their limitations. And so I want to start creating a, a better quantitative understanding of these identity questions within China and then comparing them globally to young people around the world. This is when it gets really interesting to me. And this might be sort of my SLNE uh, upbringing. My, my dad spent a lot of time here over the last 50 years, um, came here around my the first time I came here. It was uh, the first time I stayed for longer than a couple days at Esalen was for a work study when I was 19, around the same time my dad came here for the first time when he was 19. I want to be able to sort of create a mapping culture and cognition around the world. So comparing one generational cohort, so millennials or, or whatever you want, not just in not just understanding them in China, but being able to start to understand them in, in China, comparing them in China and the United States, and then places like Germany, Brazil, Kenya, Saudi, so you start to be able to map out how culture impacts the way we think globally. It's kind of an idea that's stuck with me now for a couple of years. And if I could start to build that out, I would be a very, a very happy camper, very happy Esalen seminarian. <laughs> Zach, thanks so much for talking with us. Thanks so much for having me. It was a blast. I'm also easy to find. Like I, uh, I, I post my email publicly. It's zak at youngchinagroup.com. Um, I do have a pretty good amount of content out there and, and encourage people to reach out to me directly. I'd love to hear from you, and particularly if you're coming at this through the Esalen channel. So don't hesitate to reach out. I, I look forward to hearing from you. Thank you for listening to Voices of Esalen. Today's show is produced in conjunction with Cheryl Franzel, Lori Putnam, and Shannon Hudson. Our music is by Nico Holloman. If you'd like to hear more episodes, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast, and more. You can also find all of our podcasts archived at our website, esalen.org. That's E-S-A-L-E-N.org. The Esalen Institute is a nonprofit organization. Programs like this one are made possible by the support of our donors. 